If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight On, please share us with a friend and leave a review or star rating on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on James McEwen, the Bristol, UK-based artist who releases music under the name Hawksmoor. James first created Hawksmoor five years ago. Inspired by the six 18th century churches in London, designed by architect Nicholas Hawksmoor. Described as English Baroque in style, these buildings are large, foreboding, and even Gothic in nature. Imagine the music inspired by such things, and you have Hawksmoor. Each Hawksmoor album features unique themes and inspirations, and have been typically composed using a sonic palette of analog Moog instruments, electronic rhythms, and live bass with subtle, textural guitar elements. Hawksmoor's latest, their debut on Soul Jazz Records, Telepathic Heights, combines a love of German electronic music from the 70s, alongside British retrofuturism and hauntology, an aesthetic that evokes cultural memory of times past. Great record, great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. already tell we're going to have a nice conversation anybody that sits in front of that many books is uh all right and is i like that <laughs> yeah it's not just a wallpaper they are real books right <laughs> oh it's not just a zoom background <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. genuine books yeah yeah amazing so i have spent a lot of the last few hours in particular but the last few days immersed in your new album oh amazing great it's interesting, James, because it's your arrival in my sort of my Spotify feed coincided with me reading a recent book about the history of minimalism in music. Oh, okay. Right. The authors describe the book as a revisionist history because they are contextualizing the movement beyond just Terry Riley, Lamont Young, Philip Glass, Steve Reich. And I wonder... Do you think of yourself within that lineage? How do you think of the minimalists in general? Terry Riley is a huge influence. I, I love Terry Riley. I consider myself as part of that canon. I'm not sure I would go that far. <laughs> I think uh, my ego will keep me in check there. But in terms of their influence, yeah, absolutely. Terry Riley has been a huge influence. I've seen NC performed a number of times by various various different incarnations with kind of symphony orchestras to Adrian Utley from Port's Head did a guitar version of In Sea. And then about three years ago, probably, I actually got to see Terry Riley. And that was fantastic. That was an amazing experience. And I really wanted to go because I thought, bless the guy, he's in his 80s now, but he may not tour again. And I saw him at a venue called St. George's in Bristol, which is a lovely kind of converted church concert hall so acoustically it was fantastic it was just the right ambience 
he was playing with his son, Guy and Riley. So immediately there was this kind of symbiotic relationship between them. And it was fantastic. It was, it was a spiritual experience. I think I can go as far to say that. It, he was predominantly playing piano. His son was on guitar, electric, but very minimal and, and melodic. Terry Riley's piano playing was, it was an amazing thing really because it was somewhere in between um, it was probably less like the kind of minimalism that we'd associate with in terms of like a performance like in C, something like that. It was more, how would I describe it? it kind, of, kind of bluesy ragtime, jazz, and then from that into kind of Eastern spiritual. So it was this fantastic blend of kind of wow. sensibilities. And it was a really profound experience, actually. One that I'll, I'll never forget in terms of a live performance. So, so yeah, absolutely. Though that, Terry Riley specifically is a touch point. I mean, Philip Glass as well. I love the solo piano album. That's probably my favorite of his. Again, getting into that kind of meditative, repetitive, cyclical kind of music. But yeah, I'm interested in, in all of that kind of genre, really. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, 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 it absolutely, it feeds into what I do, yeah. What was your path or musical evolution that, brought you into the world of electronic music. And I, and I specifically ask that because from what I've read and from what I can hear, there are definitely multiple strands or traditions that unite in your music. I've watched some of your social media, so it's clear that you also come from a rock canon. Yeah. Very curious about what was the 15-year-old James and then how did that young man's musical interests lead to the James of today? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess that's a kind of potted history, really. Yeah. I started playing guitar as, as many people do early teens kind of thing. So guitar was my way in. Even before that, my kind of some of the sort of generic kind of touchstones of kind of getting it into like heavy metal or whatever, you know, something that you grasp onto. In fact, to go back even further than that, I think probably one of the first things I experienced was my parents' record collection or what was left of that finding that as a way in. So music like kind of John Williams, there was an album called The Hype Below, very much kind of guitar based. I think it was the theme from The Deer Hunter as well. I think that was on there. And seeing things like the cover of, as a child really, seeing things like the cover of King Crimson's Court of the Crimson King and being scared silly just as a child seeing that image. But then later, yeah, so then move on and then around the age of sort of 12, 13, something like that, I started to take out cassettes from my local library <laughs> and that became my kind of gateway into just exploring kind of music so yeah so as i say then first things i probably would have got into were like sort of heavy metal sort of thing motorhead that kind of thing again as a, more as a kid just looking at the cover kind of thing one of the things i got into though around that age i remember seeing pink floyd's delicate sound of thunder on tv and recording that on like a betamax cassette or whatever and watching that back on my vcr and the floyd have been I describe them as like my football team, if you like. They're the one band I've always loved, regardless of how kind of corny they got as they evolved. There's elements in all of their trajectory that I enjoy. And then, yeah, kind of getting into playing guitar, I guess then we get into the time of kind of early 90s, kind of grunge, pixies, stuff like that were, were bands that I was into and started a couple of bands, garage bands kind of thing, I guess you would call it, just guitar bass sort of things. But around that same that kind of time then, I sort of got interested in four-track recording. That became, for me, much more of an avenue. 
I don't know, I was, I was quite introverted. And that sort of really appealed to me, the fact that I could just put on some headphones, track some guitar and then noodle away over the top of it and just get lost in that. And then started writing songs and stuff, just made my own kind of cassettes and things like that, little things. Nothing then really developed through my 20s, more because of my kind of circumstances that I had children when I was very young. So pretty much my 20s and early 30s were taken up with that kind of thing and, and obviously just sustaining a career, that kind of stuff. And then through a kind of change of life circumstances, I went through a divorce and stuff. You know, I won't go into my personal kind of life too much, but it became a situation where I had some more free time and I could maybe look at starting a band again. So started meeting up with people on the local kind of scene and just having some kind of jams with them. Over years, that kind of evolved into a band. Initially, that was kind of an instrumental kind of thing. To begin with, quite heavy, almost rocky, psychedelia kind of thing. And then we had a change of drummer and stuff, and they were much more into like craft work and things like that. I'd always been aware of that kind of music because I've always been kind of interested. And craft work in particular, actually, were a band that I was, I was really into from an early age, more because actually my brother was really into hip hop. And I was hearing kind of Planet Rock, African Bambata and stuff like that, sampling craft work. It's, it's a weird kind of synergy really between this stuff because I was getting it from that direction and this is pre-internet. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping about the timeline a little bit, but if we go back to mid-90s, pre-internet, I was reading kind of things like Mojo magazine, that sort of thing, because that was where you find out about, you know, kind of music, right? Because there was not many other places. And through that, I'd read, I'd find out about, oh, this is great book you can get called Julian Cope's Krautrock Sampler. So I got a copy of that. And that became like a, again, a kind of gateway drug into Krautrock, Cosmici music, of which you've got Kraftwerk at one end and then you've got Noi and Harmonia and Cluster at the other end, that kind of thing. There's an electronic element to all of that stuff. Now, if we go back, sorry, jump as I say, jumping around the timeline, but if we go back to sort of 2010, around that time, I'm forming this band. We then get a female singer. Um, we evolve into this band, which was called High Fiction Science. Not a great name, I have to say, but it kind of, <laughs> you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs> we cannot all be held to account for our old band names. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and, and then you look at all band names, and you think, does it really matter? None of them are great, are they, when you analyze them? So, yes, yeah, so we worked together. We all had full-time jobs, so this was kind of like a, a side hustle kind of thing, but one that I started to take more and more seriously. I really wanted to make it. I felt what we were doing was pretty good, but I'm not sure anyone really got it. Our rhythm section was very much post-punk influenced. I'm coming from my kind of Floyd psychedelia, crowd rock vibe. We then got a guy in to sort of play some keys. We got a female singer that sounded like she was coming from sort of Fairport Convention. <laughs> so we got this kind of weird, weird kind of mishmash of ideas and some of it coalesced and worked, I think. It all sounds very English. <laughs> it, but yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, and it's maybe a bit of a hard sell. What do you sound like? We sound like blah, blah, blah. And it's, oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, we did some stuff. We did a couple of albums. And by our second album, we managed to get signed to Cherry Red. We felt, at that stage, we felt, or I certainly felt like we'd won the lottery. I thought, well, this is it. We've made it. We're going to be rock stars. The reality then kicked in that actually it's not really like that. We got nominated for a Prog Magazine Award, which was a funny kind of thing because I didn't, we didn't really feel that we fitted with that sort of genre as such. But the label was very much of that oeuvre 
And so I went to this award ceremony and met loads of kind of prog luminaries. And it was, you know, it was a great kind of, makes for a great anecdote, sharing a table with Peter Gabriel and all these people. It was like, wow, you know. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Rock, rock royalty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we did one more album after that, but the label didn't want to know because we'd not really sold anything. That's the potted history of where I came from. Now, towards the end of that, I'd invested some money in a Moog and had started to explore just could we bring that into that sound kind of thing. I was really just feeling my way into it at that stage. I guess I, I started to play with that more and more on my own, layering stuff up. And at that time, I was really interested in it. Well, I still am interested in psychogeography. So authors like Ian Sinclair, people like that. Mm-hmm. I'd read some bits and pieces of Ian Sinclair's work, but I'd specifically read this book called Lud Heats, which was about his time as a gardener in London in the 70s. He's a kind of nascent author at that stage, aspiring author, but he's mean, meanwhile working in these gardens in London, churchyards and things like that. It's sort of a diary of his time doing that. What he starts to explore is this kind of cartographic connection between the Hawksmoor churches in London and <laughs> purportedly, if you look at the six churches and draw lines between them, you end up with like a pentagram. Nicholas Hawksmoor's churches were seen as very esoteric and not very Christian because they used lots of interesting kind of motifs from architecture from Egypt and things like that. I just became fascinated in that. From that, I'd read Peter Aykroyd's Hawksmoor novel, which was loosely based on that Ian Sinclair book. And I just thought, yeah, wouldn't it be great to walk around those churches and go and experience that. So I went, I spent a day in London doing that. And by the way, if you ever do that, it actually turns out they're quite far apart. So it's quite a long walk, right? <laughs> so I did as many as I could and, and hopped on the tubes and stuff. But yeah, so what, what I then wanted to do is take that kind of experience and produce like a kind of a, a sort of an imaginary soundtrack to that. So I came up with some ideas and it was all pretty much just based around the Moog generating all of the sounds of so the rhythms, the kind of textural elements. I played some live bass on it, but that became the, the first Hawksmoor album, basically. It was just a, a one-off standalone thing, or so I thought at that time. And so that's how I started that journey into more electronica. did you think you were going to get and what did you actually get from walking the grounds themselves? What was that experience about for you? So as I say, I'm interested in psychogeography and this idea of kind of flaneurs that kind of draw lines on a map and then follow this just to see where it will go, kind of where it will take you, that kind of thing. 
that was an idea that developed from Guy Debord and the Situationists. It was partly to do with that. It was partly just to have a day getting lost in London, finding my way around, but also to just to evoke what that feeling would be like of experiencing those buildings. Yeah, I, d- I don't know, really, to try and just take that emotion, that feeling, and translate that into music in some way, not in some kind of grandiose kind of composition way, more just sitting down, coming up with some sounds, but having that in the back of my mind as a catalyst, really. So nothing more than that, but just as a way in. And then I, s- I suppose you could say I retrofitted it because I then put the names of those churches to the tracks. But kind of imagined, okay, this one sounds like it could reflect St. Anne's Limehouse or whatever, because it, I can picture that and it gives me that kind of feeling of this landscape kind of thing. So that, that was the connection, really. Interesting, because I had in my, in my notes to ask you about how and if you had interests or influence from the occult and sacred geometry. It seemed like there was mm. that element in what was happening here. You didn't use those exact words, but I've certainly, I'm familiar with Alan Moore and the From Hell work. So I wasn't sure which angle you came to Hawksmoor from. Yeah. And then where in that sort of cultural stew you bounced around. And I wonder how far into what I'll call like the non-academic esoteric do your interests go? Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, Alan Moore specifically and From Hell and that, I wasn't really aware of that at the time. I was aware of Alan Moore, but it was from how was one that I'd not come across. So it was purely in through Ian Sinclair, that route into it. And then subsequently, I found all this other stuff about that I was not the first to tap into this Hawksmoor stuff by any means. That became very apparent. But the occult side of things, yeah, I do, I do have an interest in that for sure. I mean, I used to read a lot of stuff about Crowley and, and those kind of things, but I'd probably look at it more from a sort of I don't want to say theological angle, but a more philosophical take on it now, probably, rather than kind of the, the, the ritual aspect of it and all that kind of stuff. That, that doesn't really appeal to me, but, but certainly isn't these esoteric avenues that you can go down with this stuff do fascinate me for sure. Yeah. There's two elements that I find particularly interesting. And if it's irrelevant, I'm happy to leave the line of inquiry, but... No, no, sure. The two elements that I find particularly interesting, one is... The actual manifestation of something in especially a lot of the churches in England and throughout and through Scotland. And there was some influence happening with many of the architects that brought in all kinds of bizarre iconography and art is reflected. I mean, it's certainly the how and the why of that might be controversial, but the fact of it is it's etched in stone in these buildings, you know. Literally. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, literally. yeah. And That to me is so fascinating, whether it's a reflection of like the local customs or whatever knowledge was being transmitted there is fascinating. Tangentially related to that is, more broadly speaking, what is the knowledge transmission? What is the genesis point of that knowledge? Who in the distant past is speaking to us through churches and through this iconography and through other occult means? Certainly Crowley tried to make the, and he's not the only one who tried to make the connection back through the guilds and back to the Egyptians. And regardless of how much weight or validity you want to ascribe to it, and certainly many of us have different beliefs and feelings about it, it's a fascinating thing to play with. It's fun. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I guess I'll ask a two-part question. How do you think about these matters? 
Do you see them as part of a knowledge transmission? And secondly, how does all of this, and especially your music, intersect with your academic studies? Are these sides of the same dice to you, or are they different parts of your life? Or Okay, so back to, to the first part of the question. I think in particular, when you talk about the churches, and, 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 and obviously I'm very much focused on the British landscape here, a lot of those churches and those sites are things that have been built on top of what were originally pagan sites or, you know, they've been kind of commandeered by Christianity effectively. So that that's interesting to me. And so going back further than that and looking behind that, it, things like I've always been fascinated again by sites like Stonehenge, obviously, but particularly close to where I live in Bristol, there's a number of places. So I'm not that far from Stonehenge, really. I'm about an hour away from Glastonbury Tor. We've got Avebury, Stone Circle. And as you probably know, the UK is just riddled with things like this kind of landscape. And it's those more kind of pagan, druid sort of landscapes and, and the artifacts that I find really fascinating. Why do those things exist? Why was that created? And then and I guess that, that, that does speak to me in terms of a connection back to just the land and the landscape. And yeah, I need to just preserve the land, really, rather than kind of build all over it, despite what I've said about all the architecture and stuff. So that's the way that that stuff would speak to me. One of the other albums that I did was called Saturnalia, and that was based on, I called it kind of Pagantronica, tongue-in-cheek, really. But um, <laughs> but those were, yeah, playing again, playing with those same kind of ideas about kind of stone circles and Gnostic kind of symbols and those kind of things. So that that's the way that that kind of stuff speaks to us. So yeah, I'm I'm currently doing an under, undergraduate degree in philosophy. So yeah, absolutely. Those topics, those those things do feed into all of the, all of the music because they're part of a bigger wider interest that I've developed in well, philosophy is a broad subject, right? So there's many different aspects of that that, that affect our life. In particular, I guess the thing that I'm interested in is more about philosophy of the mind and consciousness and the way that consciousness can be altered. And those kind of areas of philosophy really appeal to me. That said, I'm also kind of tempering that with religious studies as well, because, you know, I needed to choose a couple of different pathways to supplement the degree. And that was kind of the closest that would not take me too far off on another tangent it is a related topic. And that's not from a sort of a theological angle, it's purely from a uh, religious studies angle. So looking at different kind of faiths and, and how that kind of manifests itself and how it affects people's lives and the sort of sociological aspect of that. But absolutely, all of those areas that I read about and, and delve into in some way inform something that I try and do with the music. It used to be that they would be more conceptual, maybe. And, and I think that became a bit of a kind of an artistic safety net in some ways. Because it's a lot easier to kind of, well, not easier, but it's, it's a neat way of pulling everything together if you've got concepts and you can hang stuff off of it, and whether that's going back to the first Hawksmoor album. Conceptually, that's quite a nice thing to do. That said, with the latest album, with Telepathic Heights, this was the first time that I'd got a collection of music together that I felt kind of hung together well, worked as an album, as a listening experience but didn't really have any connecting thread as such 
that kind of unified it all and pulled it all together under a concept. And I was actually quite nervous about doing that. When I met with Soul Jazz that released it, when I spoke to them, they were like, don't worry about it. It doesn't need to have that. It means more to you than the listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if it's cool and it works. And that was the first time I was like, okay, wow, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. It was quite nervous for me, really, to like let go of that. As a, you know, I don't need necessarily a conceptual umbrella for this to all be under. But yeah, that was a bit of a leap, really, artistically. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. To go deeper into our episodes, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. Or to get a fuller, unedited experience, go find this episode on SpotlightOnPodcast.com. There, the notes are packed with links to resources that give you more about the people and topics explored here. And now, back to Spotlight On. I'm sorry to say I've never held a physical release of any of your projects in my hands. I've only heard the music streaming. And I wonder if in the physical packaging at all, certainly in the previous albums, but I wonder about the current one as well, did you make artistic statements? Did you include anything about the concepts? Were you trying to set that expectation or that context for the listener? Or was it truly just in your head? Okay, so going back to, to the very first self-titled album, yes, absolutely. I worked with a small label called Environmental Studies. And because it was going to be a very limited release, we really went to town on the way that would be packaged. So it was, I think it was only like 50 copies or something like that we released. Wow. It was a CD, but it was in a kind of a nice kind of cardboard case with a fold out map, almost like a blueprint that showed those, the cartographic links between those Holtzmore churches and stuff like that. So it was a really nicely packaged kind of thing. I wanted to kind of get a bigger kind of audience, really. I wanted to increase the reach of people hearing this music. And I started to, through social media, really, realize that there was this whole kind of scene of people releasing stuff on cassette. To begin with, I was a bit like, you know, it's, it's hard to believe cassettes have come back. <laughs> it, it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy, right? And I was like, mm, is this really the format? You know, is this... But I looked into a couple of labels that were doing this and they'd grown with their own kind of fan base of people that collected this stuff specifically. They had a really good kind of American artist, a guy called Eric Adrian Lee. So this is a label called Spun Out of Control. Eric Lee did this amazing piece of artwork for Methods of Dreaming. Again, this was... A very much a conceptual piece based around this idea of a all a kind of made up story but it was this idea about this academic that produced this document a paper written about methods of dreaming and this was the kind of music that would reflect the ways that you could invoke these kind of dream states and that kind of stuff so that kind of preamble and backstory was given to the label eric adrian lee i think had read that and used that as the inspiration for the artwork and that came together really nicely I did another album with them. I did three, actually. Another one was called On Prescription, which was about... So my wife had been through breast cancer, and this was a album that was really produced to raise money for a breast cancer charity, but also as a, as a kind of artistic way of just... It was therapy for me, really, just to creatively pour this out in some way. And I based that the names of those track titles around imaginary names for chemotherapy drugs. So again, the artwork kind of reflected that. And then the last album that I did with Spun Out of Control was actually then released on CD, which was the biggest step up. That was called Head Coach. And again, that comes back to a kind of psychogeographical kind of concept in that 
So the town of Milton Keynes in the UK was actually the town planners that created that were all basically a bunch of kind of hippies in the early to mid 60s. They were interested in those themes of summer solstice and and all of those roads have got names like Midsummer Boulevard and they'd created it based on so the summer solstice would actually align with Midsummer Boulevard and stuff like that. So you've got this very modern town, but with these very kind of arcane, pagan, druid themes that, that relate to it. So I, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting, that it was this mundane 60s town. But if you look below the surface, there are these kind of really sort of esoteric things that, that, that pull it all together. And head coach was just a nod to being your head coach and kind of you know, great. a bit of a poor, <laughs> poor play on words, but you know. And then as I say, Saturnalia again was another album, that sort of pagan tronica theme. But then this album, Telepathic Heights, I pretty much gave this all over wholesale to Soul Jazz Records to produce the, the sleeve to do everything really. Because I was a big fan of them as a label because they'd released a number of Kraut Rock Cosmishi compilations that I was really into. Having talked to the label, they were like, let's try and do something that reflects the same kind of design that we used on those compilations. I guess in a subtle way to make people think, okay, well, if you like this, you may like this. That's Spotify mentality, really, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I was really surprised by it. It wasn't what I expected at all, but I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and it's very striking kind of. I love the album art. Yeah, really sort of bold colors, just pop art. And it does pop out. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was, as I say, not what I expected but not something I would have come up with. So it was really interesting, actually. That anecdote sort of reflects the limits and the potential of some of the conceptual elements of what you're talking about. Because before speaking with you, my perception was that it was all part and parcel of one conceptual vision. Because reading about the importance of hauntology in your work, which I, I'd, I'd like to talk about with you, and how that aspect of music often draws on sort of retro futurism or or retro design elements like it it's, it it all feels very integrated conceptually you know soul jazz is plenty smart enough to be able to 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 pull that together on their own but it 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 felt like a singular vision so i think it's very interesting for you to say i did not have this overriding concept for this album yet it it lands very integrated conceptually so there's a couple of things there. I think that's the combination of the fact that the music did hang together as a, as I say, not not overtly conceptual, but as a, as a as an album, as a listening experience. I think it worked together well. And then based on the conversations that I had with Stuart from Soul Jazz to to actually explain where I was coming from in terms of my influences and the way those influences fed into what I wanted to produce, yet with my own kind of take on it, my own sort of starting to develop, hopefully, a kind of signature sound. And I think, yeah, so that, that conversation was enough. And straight away, Stuart said, yeah, I see this, us presenting this as a kind of pop art, with a kind of pop art vision. And that made me think of then, so then going back to the past, so thinking of some of those great sort of crack rock albums that present like that. So you've got things like the, the first couple of Noi albums, just with that really striking text, just Noi, that's it, almost wrote with a Sharpie kind of thing. And then you've got bands like Cluster, again, Harmonia, those sort of things that are very flat, bright colours, almost jarring in a way. 
but that's the beauty of it. Yeah, that's become emblematic of that sort of sound and that, that sort of music. So yeah, that, it was a real skill of them to, to pull that together. And as you say, yeah, they're clearly smart enough to be able to do that. But I think it was a combination of that, the music and our conversations around what I wanted to represent. So yeah, it came together well. you talk about the visual element in, in some of the early Krautrock because it is strikingly different from the English music of that time. I know it's not a perfect analog, but the closest I think there was at that time in English music was probably early Prague. The visual element of that music was much more, I, I want to say muted, but I don't mean it like you talked about Court of the Crimson King. That, that album cover isn't muted. It's a lot of bright colors, but it's almost like through a screen or through a film. You know, there was this thing. And certainly with the, the enigmatic work of hypnosis that that influenced a lot of the, the early 70s album art, there was something always muted or subdued in the visual presentation in the English music versus German and Western European. It's, it's fascinating. I, I don't know yeah. what to make of it. I don't know if there's a thing there, but it strikes me. I think you're right. I think there is. I mean, muted as in, I think, going back to Crimson, I mean, that's painterly, isn't it, in the way that it's presented? But the hypnosis stuff, they're sort of reflecting surrealism, that sort of thing. But there's a kind of, well, there's a dour kind of Englishness to it, right? An English kind of melancholy, which you certainly see in things like, I don't know, some of the Floyd's covers. I mean, they did Led Zeppelin, didn't they? Presence, that kind of thing. And then I think of like the Peter Gabriel album covers they did as well. They're stylized, but there's a sort of almost a melancholy to it, I think. And that that style is very instantly recognizable. Whereas I think maybe some of that German music of that time, it's interesting. I read the, forget the author now, but it's a crack rock and the sort of evolution of craft work and the evolution of German music. And it's talking about the way that those German artists of that time needed to recreate a new, literally start again right? Yeah. Post-war, they needed to start again and create their own vision. And I think a lot of that stuff was kind of more about, we can do something that's a bit positive, maybe. Yeah. Positive, upbeat. This is new music. This is exciting. This is kind of futuristic. Certainly the Kraftwerk stuff would tap into that as a way of asserting themselves with some distance from the atrocities of World War II, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that's interesting. I think that feeds into it. But yeah, you're right. There is an absolute juxtaposition between those two types of artwork for sure 
I think I may know the book you're referring to. Uh, I forget the author's name as well. It was originally in German. It's a white book. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Lucky Let's it's see a handle if it's the book. Let's see. This one, right? Yeah, exactly. I read that yeah, last yeah. year. Yeah, it's a great yeah. book. I love actually where that book ends in terms of placing craft work and where they are now. And it's essentially that I had, you know, I hadn't thought about how the albums are a completed body of work now. And, and what they do is they go around and present it. Like that's what a craft work live show is or a craft work tour is a complete multimedia presentation of this museum piece it's almost a retrospective but it's still alive because they update it and they up convert the visuals and it's a fixed body of work that they just exist to present authentic as authentically as possible it's fascinating it is yeah it's like you say it's a it's almost like an exhibition in some ways isn't it it's just this is the body of work and this is what we present i doubt there'll ever be any new music from craft work i wouldn't have thought so in that it's just ralph hutter left now do you think they tour after he passes? Do you know what? Sadly, they probably will in this day and age. Not to denigrate that stuff, but Tangerine Dream still going now, aren't they? And I don't think there's any original members there. I don't, I've not experienced their music. So, you know. Those... I mean, Soft Machine is like. They, they, well, they're... man, Soft Machine is like a million incarnation. I mean, that is a absolute, yeah, <laughs> an evolving, you know, there's evolution there. Gong too. Gong is still going now, right? It felt like they had David Allen's blessing to do that so that was slightly different i suppose and that's the interesting thing then we've become that's very much the music industry right the music business and that's about we need to continue to market this brand this product which i'm never really that comfortable with obviously i buy into it literally because i collect the music of various things but i don't know it's always a bit uncomfortable that there's that side of it seems so juxtaposed with the artistic side there's a game to play because you need to get your music out there, right? You want to get it on Spotify, but there's still this slightly uncomfortable crossover where the artistic and the commerce kind of meet. It's always going to be that way, right? The challenge, I think, of, of, of pop art in general, right? Like some people confront that head on and play with the line in sort of a glib upfront fashion and other people have to live with a lot of ambivalence and uncertainty around pop and the art. It's interesting, though, James, because I struggle with a lot of those same issues, but I've arrived at a slightly different place, which is, first of all, being a bit of a jazz fan, you and I could buy a ticket right now and go see the Count Basie Orchestra, or we could go see the Charles Mingus Big Band. Yeah. Is that, I don't know if that's wrong. I have no opinion. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know enough about what the intention of Count Basie was, or, you know, I'm sure it's all learnable, but I don't know anything about the why of that. But I'm fascinated with the notion of tribute bands. We mentioned Pink Floyd. Like, I interviewed Nick Mason. He pays attention to what's going on to the point of, like, being careful how they route their tours. It's how he chose to focus on that specific pre-Dark Side era. He was like, nobody's out peddling this music that I have to compete with, so I'm going to go fill that market niche. But I also, where I land is, like, what happens... Five, 10 years from now, whatever it is, the classic rock generation will be gone. Should nobody be able to see a Led Zeppelin concert ever again? I, I don't know. Or see those songs. And I always thought it would be interesting if a lot of those bands would actually do what Broadway musicals do and license 
like I want to go see the Houses of the Holy tour. There should be a, an official production with the stage set and the costumes and the actual arrangements from that tour. I, I don't know. I could see rock fans hating it. I could see rock fans loving it. But in a day and age where the Australian Pink Floyd plays arenas, I think more people might. <laughs> well, you're right. I think that you might be onto something there. And don't forget, we're just stepping into the realms of AI now. So, And the thing ABBA's done? Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's the start of introducing this stuff to another generation. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will because the industry will want a bit more bang for their buck, won't they? Well, and I don't want to see the music die. There's so many bands whose legacies are not tended well, who in their day were very important. I don't know. I guess I, I worry about those things too much, but... <laughs> hey, someone's got to do it, right? Well, I, you know, it also reminds me of your video for Abstract Machines and oh, right. yeah, all yeah, that yeah. old virtual reality footage. Yeah, yeah. Which is another area. Virtual reality has a moment where it is retrofuturism. It, never, it almost never had its future. Yeah, that's very true. So there's a crossover there, actually. I've just recently read a book by an Australian philosopher called David Chalmers. He's now based in New York and is a professor there. And he's wrote an amazing book called Reality Plus. This deals with the concept that taps into virtual reality, but also one step further than that about simulations and mm. this concept of could we be living in a simulation? Now, this obviously is bit hackneyed because it was done in the 90s with the matrix or whatever but they were basing that on these kind of science fiction kind of thought experiments and that's fascinating to me these ideas of as ai progresses we will be in i don't know 50 100 years time we will be in a situation where potentially that stuff that seems actually quite corny at the moment when you put on some vr headset and see your hands in front of you or whatever that's potentially going to become indistinguishable from reality. It's scary, but it's also fascinating. And and so all of those things that you mentioned, maybe I can just go and see Pink Floyd or whatever, or maybe I can go to the Fillmore or something, because it's going to be like that. It's going to be the same. That generation won't know any different kind of thing. It doesn't relate it back to music, but it's an interesting way that you could relive all of that stuff potentially and relive many different lives, I suppose. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic, yeah. Is that the end of culture? Do we stop creating at that point because we're so concerned with living in things we couldn't experience? I don't think so. I think there'll always be, again, it comes back to the way that will be marketed by the commercial aspect of that. There will always be a market for doing that kind of stuff. But I think equally, musicians, artists will want to embrace that stuff and, and, and create new things with it. For sure. So no, I don't, I don't think that's the end of culture. I think it's, in many ways, that's just the beginning of, of a new form of it, I think. Yeah. I hope not, anyway.
I've come around to the idea, and, and this is a fluid notion for me, so I, this is just today's take on it, but I think I'm coming around to the idea that, especially as it relates to all these discussions with AI, putting aside the societal repercussions and the deep fakes and the very scary real things that it will do to manipulate people's understanding of the world around them and inability to distinguish between reality and falsehood. As it relates to the arts, I think I'm coming around to the idea that it's only making the role of the artist more important. It may marginalize or trivialize the work of a certain type of creative function in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But for artists, I think they become more valuable to our society because the human element becomes more it, that noise, that imperfection that the that the human adds to it will become more valuable, I think. I've played around with ideas of coming up with song titles and you can put that into chat GPT and say, I'm making an album about X subject and can you give me 10 album tr track titles? And, and they're always very generic and you can tell these are AI produced because they're so generic, it's untrue. There's, there's maybe one or two you think, oh, that's kind of okay. But most of them are just, they're rubbish. At the moment, we're just not there. But as that stuff gets better and better... I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be something that, that, that people can, can harness. But for sure, you're right. There's always going to be that need for that human imperfection. But, but also, I think the role of any kind of artist is to say, this is the world I'm in right now. This is what I'm experiencing. And this is my take on it. This is how it, it's going to be filtered through the, the human, right? And what comes out then is the art. And so, yeah, when it gets put through that kind of human filter, it's going to be full of imperfections or maybe more relatable or I don't know. I don't know. But there's definitely a, a role for the artist to be that filter for whatever is the new thing in culture, in technology, whatever. In these conversations I have with people, I keep saying that it's not chat GPT-3 that's interesting. It's GPT-6. That's yeah. what we need to be thinking about and talking about. I wanted to ask you about your compositional process, if you don't mind. Mm, um, sure. Do you make process music? Do you follow rules? Do you, like, when you sit down and say, I'm feeling inspired right now, today's a work day, I'm going to create, how does that start for you? Are you at a piano? Are you at a computer? Do you have, do you take out your Brian Eno cards? I do crack out my bleach strategies, yeah, often. But I try and use those when I'm at an impasse, a creative impasse, because that's where they should be used, right? So yeah, I, I do that. And I, cre I often credit that on the albums that I use those because I think it's just a fascinating creative concept. To be honest with you, I, I work a full-time job as well. So very often I don't have that luxury when I think today will be a composition day. It's usually about this is the time frame that I've got to do something. For many years, I, was, I kicked against that and thought, this is really bad. My art's kind of really marginalized. But I've actually come around to the idea that actually maybe that kind of short, sharp, focused time that you get is maybe a more valuable way of doing this because you've got to make it count, right? So it depends, really. It can be, it, it literally can be anything. It can be a, a sound that I've generated from, I don't know, just a noise. It could be something I've, a sound that I heard that I recorded on my phone. It could be anything. It might be more traditional that I sit down and start noodling on the guitar and just, oh, okay, this sounds like quite a pleasant thing maybe i could develop that in some way or if it's the more electronic side of things then what i'll often do is use the modular setup so using the moogs um, using the the moog dfam 
and the Mother 32 and set up a patch with that. And then that might, that will often suggest a rhythm or create a kind of sequenced melody that then often grows into something. And sometimes that is the kind of the framework and the starting point. What I then do is layer stuff on top of it. And occasionally I'll live with that for a bit. And then I may end up actually removing what I started with and continuing with the layers that I've put on top. And so actually it may have started in one direction, but then becomes something very different, maybe something very ambient or the other way around, something much more layered or or stripped out, something very that sounds almost very guitar-based and compositional, but it actually started with a very strict rhythmic modular track or baseline or something that I started with. So in answer to that, yeah, it's, it's varied. It's varied. It depends. Yeah. However you arrive there, I very much enjoy <laughs> the output. So um, oh, great. thank you so much for, Good to for hear the it, wonderful Lawrence. work. Yeah. No, I, and, and I appreciate you making time today. Thank you so much, James. No, not at all. My pleasure. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much, James McEwen. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, our bonus tracks blog, online store, mailing list, and to make a donation to support our production, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.